Tell the Romans they're not done for us. Hi, and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil, and you can find me on Twitter at AncientBlogger, and find lots of ancient history content on my website, ancientblogger.com. This is a special episode, as I'm joined by LJ Trafford, who's the author of Palatine, Galba's Men, Otho's Regret, and Vitellius's Feast. These books are set in ancient Rome, and specifically in the turmoil of AD 69, what's otherwise known as the Year of the Four Emperors. LJ has recently had a new book published titled How to Survive in Ancient Rome. This is set in AD 95 and explores what Rome would have been like for a visitor or average Roman living there. In this episode, I'll be quizzing LJ over AD 69, what life was like at the end of the first century AD in Rome and how it feels to be a fully paid up member of the Emperor Domitian fan club. So hello LJ and welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you. <laughs> can't think of a can't think of a better way to spend a Friday night. <laughs> no, well, you have got wine, so life <laughs> is good. So I've mentioned about what you've done, and you've written a number of books. The obvious question to start then is, how did you get into writing about Roman history? Well, I first got into Roman history as such when I was at sixth form, and I was doing my A levels, and I was doing A level English lit. And they make you in the UK, they make you do Shakespeare um, by force. So I did two Shakespeare plays. I did much to do about nothing. And I did Antony and Cleopatra. And being quite swatty, I thought, well, I'll read around the subject of Antony and Cleopatra. And I'll read about the historic characters in it. And the, the villain, the baddie in Antony and Cleopatra is Octavius Caesar. And I was quite surprised when I read up about him to find out that he became the good Emperor Augustus. And that set me off on a kind of mystery because I do love a mystery and I do love solving a mystery. So I started reading about Augustus and I started off actually with historical fiction. Um, so I started off with the likes of I, Claudius and the Alan Massey books. Um, and this was the early 90s. So there wasn't a great deal of R Roman historical fiction around then. It was quite spare. So I was forced to read things like Ben-Hur and Cuvardos, which are very dull and very long. And then, and then I moved on. I kind of moved on from the historical fiction. I started reading Suetonius and Tacitus and Livy and Josephus. And it kind of got to the point where I was drawing out the Julio-Claudian um, dynasty using PowerPoint family tree, which is very complicated. That I thought, maybe it's, you know, all that interbreeding, all that intermarriage. And I kind of thought, maybe I should study this subject. Um, so I had to kind of talk my way onto a degree course because I'd neglected to take a history A-level or, um, or indeed a history GCSE. In fact, I dropped history age 13. So I wrote a kind of I wrote a supporting statement, which was basically just kind of fangirling over Augustus. And that, that kind of got me onto, onto a degree course. So that's when my interest in Roman history came about. Um, in terms of writing it, I tried many books. I started many books and never finished them. Um, Palatine is the only book I first book I actually managed to finish writing and I think it probably helped that I didn't know that much about 69 AD before I began writing it I knew a bit I knew who the emperors were but I would how the whole idea came about was reading um, the Gwyn Morgan book on uh, the year of the four emperors which is very good and there's a point in uh, 69 AD in January where Golba is emperor and he hears that the Praetorians have declared Otho emperor and there's a big debate about what they should do. 
And the debate is whether he should go down to the forum to appeal to the masses or whether they should hold the palace by arming the imperial slaves. And it was a kind of ping moment in my head because I thought, oh, I wonder what those slaves were thinking. And then you start thinking, well, what are they thinking? Whose side are they on? Are they on Golba's side? Are they on Offo's side? Or are they on the emperor before? Are they on Nero's side? And that started off a whole load of questions in my head that I kind of wanted to answer. And they're sort of good characters to have the kind of slaves and ex-slaves of the palace because they're there in the middle of the action. So they're good witnesses if you're going to write fiction. They're seeing everything. You know, who went with Nero when he fled from Rome? He took his freedmen with him. So that was how I kind of came to write the series. And kind of each book had a kind of question that I wanted to answer. So the second one was, you know, if Golba arrives in Rome in October 68 and he's dead by January, you know, what the hell happened? You know, and I, that's, I wanted to kind of explore questions like that. And so that kind of propelled me through four books because I wanted to know what happened. I wanted to see which of my characters were going to survive or not survive or how they were going to survive in these kind of desperate situations that they kept finding themselves in. Yeah, I mean, it's perfect. it's perfect year for fiction because the set pieces are there for you already. So if you're writing it, I, you know, you've got the set piece there and you've just got to write up to it. You know that an emperor is going to fall. You know there's going to be a battle. So you've just got to kind of write your way to there. So it's kind of, it's kind of lazy for a fiction writer because I don't have to make much up about events. But the characters, which is kind of handy because there's not, you know, if you're taking like a freedman of kind of Nero's, they'll get like three lines in the historical record. So I've got kind of, the license to create a whole life for them around that and say well yeah they were married yeah they had kids yeah they look like this because there's nobody to contradict me whereas Nero we know what Nero looked like we know what Nero said so I've got to keep to it quite closely I always think when someone says Nero I think of Houston of yeah I just did when you said it when I think of Nero I popped in my head <laughs> we can find you on social media can't we yes you can follow me on Twitter which is just at Trafford LJ and I'm on Facebook somewhere. I've got a question actually about your your Twitter because I found you on Twitter from Phallus Thursday. <laughs> yeah. My proudest achievement. <laughs> it's hashtag Phallus Thursday and you can tell two things from the hashtag that are true. I wondered though, why not Phallus Friday? Oh, yeah, there is an explanation for this. Um because it, it came about, it's basically a Twitter hashtag dedicated to depictions of penises and antiquity. Um, because it just amuses me. And what amuses me is the gap between what was something that was so everyday to your ancient Roman that it's just everywhere. You know, you wear it around your neck, it's on a bracelet, it's on the wall, you know. It's an everyday image to them. And what we see, which is just what the, you know, the kind of mind blown. So I enjoy that gap in perception between their perception and our perception. So there's a kind of vague academic element to it. It's just not knob gags. It's art. <laughs> oh, it's art. There are some knob gags. But <laughs> it's art. It's culture. Um, so it's, it's, it's Phallus Thursday because I got too excited because I randomly, having had a bad day at work, just posted a picture of some kind of winged palaces and it turned out to be really popular. I thought, oh, I could do a hashtag about this. And then I needed something vaguely alliterative and I got too excited and I couldn't wait for Friday. So it was Phallus Thursday. So that's why, that's why. And it's, yeah, it's it's surprisingly popular every week. It is very popular. It's very popular, yeah. What we're going to do now, if that's okay, is start with AD 69. Because your books cover that period. 
could you give a sort of general overview and then we can look at the the runners and riders as it were for for the four emperors yeah certainly so my book palatine isn't actually set in 69 it's 68 which is a year before the year of the four emperors um and that's because that's when nero falls so in 68 nero had been on the throne for 14 years and he looked very secure there was nothing that would make you think he's about to be kicked off and there's a guy called vindex who's in one of the gallic provinces and he kicks off a rebellion against him and he writes to the various provincial governors for support and they all ignore him apart from a couple of notable exceptions and they send all their letters to nero and pledge allegiance to him for a couple of notable exceptions um, one of whom is golba the governor of spain um, now nero doesn't take this revolt very seriously at all he, sees no threat from it he takes it so unseriously that at a meeting he calls where they're meant to be discussing this very serious revolt he gets overexcited because his water organ has been delivered and he spends the whole the whole meeting showing off his water organ to these senators who've come up for this discussion and playing tunes for them um, which is why you should always write about Nero in fiction because you don't need to make these things up that's a genuine story. Could you invent anything that Nero did that people wouldn't believe? No, no, because he's just brilliant. Because, you know, he he wanders around the palace in a dressing gown with a kind of a scarf tied around his neck and slippers. And, you, you know, he's just he's just 100 percent brilliant because nothing has to be invented. It's all true. And kind of nothing is invented in Palatine. It's all true, you know, because you just don't need to make these things up. <laughs> when you are sort of subject hopping, as I do for my podcast, I did one on the Olympics and he won the wreath, as it were, at the Olympic Games. Normally, there there were several types of chariot races. He decided that the whole four horse thing, nah, you can do better than that. He had a 10 horse race. So 10 horses on a chariot and he came off several times, but still managed to win. And you could just imagine the kind of his competitors who obviously were terrified to win and the amount of panic there must have been with all of those horses and all those people trying not to let the horses run and overtake and just go where they wanted to go, which was probably nowhere near Nero. So, um, yeah, he's he's certainly one of the more interesting characters in, in antiquity. And, and needless to say, he's been covered a lot. He's been covered a lot. He's kind of, by this point, he has lost touch of reality somewhat. And there's people around him who are always kind of freedmen and his advisors, and they're creating this reality for him, where he's a successful chariot driver, where he's a successful singer, where he's a successful poet. They're creating this around him. So it's not really surprising he's kind of lost the plot a bit. But he he's very clear that Vindex will be defeated. But something happens, and we don't know what, but he starts to lose confidence. And it gets worse and worse. I mean, Vindex is pretty easily defeated. He's beaten by a general called Virginius um, really quite comprehensively, very quickly. But in Rome, he's starting to lose that confidence in himself. And then you get this guy who enters the scene who basically is instrumental in his downfall, which is Nymphidius Sabinus. And he's one of the Praetorian guards. And he's got an interesting background himself. He's got a very palace background. He's the, um, he's the son of a palace prostitute. And his grandfather is Callistus, who was um, Caligula's secretary, who may or may not have been involved in his assassination. And he's one of the key, he's one of the key freedmen under Claudius as well, who gets a mention. So he's got this kind of background, and he's the one who turns the troops against Nero with his own guard. So Nero wakes up one morning and he's on his own. The guards have all deserted him. And you know what to do, what to do, and he ends up fleeing Rome, and the Senate then declare him a 
you know, enemy of the state, and he ends up committing suicide with his freedman by his side. So, so Golba is effectively emperor then, and he arrives in Rome in 68 AD, and he's decapitated in the Forum on the 15th of January 69. So that's gone pretty badly, pretty quickly. Um, which we'll... We've all had tough weeks. We've had tough weeks, yeah. I'm, obviously, I'm interested in a lot of these characters. I think the value, one of the many values you bring to this conversation is that having that, that artist understanding of people, what they look like. When I see Golba type of his name in, the, in, in a search engine of your choice, you'll just invariably come across a coin. How, how did you, how did you find him in terms of how, how did he look to you knowing what you knew about him? Well, very handily, Suetonius wrote a nice description of him for me, which is always good. Um, so we know he was bald. He was 73, so he was quite elderly, if you like, when you come to the throne. And he was he was very bald. He had blue eyes and a hooked nose, according to Suetonius. And he's got terrible gout, so his hands and his feet are quite distorted by gout. And he can't wear a shoe for long. He can't unroll a book or even hold a book because his hands are so deformed. Um, so he's quite he's quite elderly, but that kind of hook nose. He's very stern, is Golba. I mean, if you, there's one word to describe him, it's, it's stern or old school. Um, he w- he'd had a very distinguished career in the administration. He'd served various emperors. There, you know, there's claims after Caligula was assassinated that the, the throne was offered to Golba because he was such good emperor material, but he turned it down. You know, and. Agrippina, the younger, once made a pass at him, but he turned it down. And, you know, Tastus has that great line about him that, you know, everyone said he had the makings of a ruler had he never ruled. So he's the guy that on paper looks, he's the full deal. He should have been a great emperor. He had the background, the training, the discipline. He should have been great. So the fact that he dies so quickly is a shock. Um, And it's all down to one man, really. I mean, you can look at what mistakes Golba made. He didn't pay the Praetorians what they felt they were deserved. You know, he was very harsh. He, um, coming into the city, there was a fracas coming in. He ended up um, practicing decimation on a legion, which hadn't been done for like 100 years. You can take all these kind of things and say, oh, yeah, he wasn't very good because of that. But if there hadn't been Offo, he would never have been killed, I think. I think he could have lasted longer. But Okay. Yeah. So it was it was more to you have, by the way, just described Mr. Burns, <laughs> who I've got in my head as as Galba. And so Otho is instrumental then. He's in a way you've got a sort of pattern. The end wouldn't have happened to Nero necessarily if Galba hadn't come along. And likewise, Galba wouldn't have lost if Otho hadn't come along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not a kind of predetermined thing. There's lots of kind of little things that happen that lead to the moments that kind of build up and build up to like Offo's coup that happens in January. But Offo was, he was the, one of the other governors that did not declare against Vindex. He was governor of what is now Portugal. Um, he's very unlike Golba. He's much, much younger. And he's, um, he's quite dissolute. He has quite a reputation. He's a bit, he's, uh, Suetonius says he's almost feminine in the care of his person. Him. He was the one who taught Nero how to perfume his feet. You know, <laughs> he was an instructor in this kind of things. So he plucked out all his body hair. He used moist bread to prevent beard growth, and he wore a toupee, which um, Suetonius claims was so good that nobody knew it was there. 
but then Suetonius is writing about this quite some decades later. So it clearly wasn't that good. And if you look at the coins, you can kind of see Offo's toupee. So he's very different to Golba. He's much younger. He's in his 30s. Um, but for some reason, he thought Golba was going to adopt him as his heir. He was absolutely set on it. And he borrowed a lot of money and spent a lot of money currying favour around Golba. And when Golba, on a particular day, didn't declare him his heir, he was in quite a position because he had a lot of debt and a lot of people wanting that money back. Um, so he decides he's going to overthrow Golba, just like that. Well, he tries to do it a few days before when he actually does, but everybody was too drunk to organise, um, according to Tacitus. So he waits a few days and tries again. And then on the 15th of January, he he decides to set up this coup, and he his, his staff gather around some kind of supporters, and his supporters number 23 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not it's not a great shot. But by the time he gets to Praetorian camp, they've doubled their numbers to 46. Um, still not a lot of people. And the Praetorians are quite bemused when he turns up and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be emperor. But they go with it. And there's an absolute bloody massacre in the forum. And it all kicks off. And as Tastus says, when killing starts, it's difficult to draw the line. And it's not this is not a battle. This is just a massacre. And Golba is decapitated and everybody around him is decapitated. And Offo is emperor. These were all his supporters then, presumably, as well. It was just an out, outright, let's say, purge of any loyalty to Galba. Yeah, because Galba had um, some advisors, and the ones that were in the forum, obviously, in the bloody massacre were gone. Uh, there's a guy called Isolet, who is freedman and also his lover, and he was crucified, which he shouldn't have been because he was a freedman, and as a freedman, you're safe from crucifixion. But it's a kind of year when all the old rules are just thrown away. So you see these kind yeah. of these traditions, these laws, these things which should be set in stone, just not being set in stone. So, yes, it was a, it was a purge. And then Otho got up to the palace and looked at the correspondence and discovered that Vitellius had been declared emperor in Germany two weeks beforehand and was marching with 20,000 men to Rome to claim his throne. And he had no oh. idea. It's a real oops. It's a real oops moment. He had absolutely no idea. And he'd just become emperor and realised... He was facing another emperor, which is a a dreadful moment for him, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's not the greatest timing. Did he have much way in the support of troops? Offa had very little because the legions weren't near him. They had to travel because, you know, obviously they're in their provinces. They're not around him. Um, so he kind of puts together this kind of ramshackle army as quickly as he can. Because another one of those kind of what-if moments is it's a very mild winter. Yeah. So Vitellius' troops can move a lot faster than usual. The snows have melted, so they move quicker than expected. So he has to muster together an army as quickly as he can. And it's made up of the Praetorian Guard, who've not necessarily been in battle recently. It's made up of eager recruits. And it's made up of gladiators, because he's that desperate. You know, so there's a, a gladiator army in there as well. When you're fighting uh, the Roman army of the middle of first century AD, you've got to get it right. And if you've got troops coming from, you say Germany, or upper Germany, that part of the world. Yeah, they're, they're the Rhine legions, they're the upper and lower Germany legions that are being marched down by two of Vitellius' generals, who are Valens and Caecina. And they're marching down separately and they're going to contravene, you know, meet up when they get to Rome. When they get to Italy, they're meant to meet and form one massive army. And that's the last thing you want to hear. Yeah, yes. It's one of those problems you have if you're ever in in charge of an army. 
you become really popular and you go to Rome, it's where's you, where are your men? Mm. You know, where, how can you access them? So you've got Vitellius coming in on the scene. What about him? What's he like? He is grotesque, um, according to all our sources. Oh, don't, is, don't hold back. I'm not going to. This is what they say. I'm just. I'm just repeating it. He's extraordinarily fat, and he yeah has a huge belly, according to Suetonius. And he drinks, and he's so greedy that he wants Nick's sacrificial meat off the flames. You know, you get these kind of stories, and he. We've he, all been there. We've all been there, and he banquets day and night, and he develops a, a dish called the. Oh, I think it's a shield of Minerva, which has you know food from every bit of the empire in this huge this huge dish of food. So he's greedy, basically. Um, and he stays in Germany and lets his troops, he lets Valens and Caecina march these armies down. So he waits to see what happens. And then he, when it's all sorted, he comes and joins them. Um, but Otho surprises everybody because he doesn't do a runner. And for someone who's such a dandy and so supposedly feminine, because he cares about his appearance, he makes a stand. And he, he has some successes against Vitellius. He has these gladiator army are quite good at kind of picking them off. Where are they fighting? Is it is it north northern Italy? It's northern Italy, yeah, northern Italy. Okay. They meet up with them and they pick off enough of his forces and they have some victories. And Offo, I think what comes out about Offo, he was clearly extremely charismatic and charming. You know that he manages to put together this army to defeat Golba. You know to throw this coup. That he manages to hold this army, this ramshackle army of kind of gladiators and Praetorians and raw recruits together, and they they're absolutely dedicated to him. They would have fought on and on and on for him, and and he's the one who says no, who says stop. I don't want this. I don't want to continue this civil war, and he commits suicide very nobly. The Romans are you know in awe of his death because it was so unlike his life that he, he took a stand and said, I don't want civil war, I'm going to kill myself. And that, that was the end of Offo, which is, you know, is admirable. That holds a lot of the uh, Roman virtues, as you said. It's, you know, the, the noble self-sacrifice. I'm quite impressed, though, that they were able to hold the Roman forces at bay. And he's committed suicide at Rome or...? In the field, in the field, in northern Italy. OK, right, so he's actually there with the troops. He's there with the troops and he was buried He was buried there in a tomb which um, Plutarch describes that was obviously still there for some, some years. But yes, he, he dies. I mean, they had, you know, I think Caecina, who's who's, who they faced marching down his troops, they get a bit cocky, the Rhine legions. They think they know they're the best of the best and they get a bit cocky. And there's a notorious siege of Placentia, which is my favourite all-time siege because it's such a cock-up. Um, which is being held by the the Ophonians. And it's a guy called Sperino. And he's got raw recruits and he's got Praetorians. He's not got much of a force and they're holding this town. And Caecina, who is described as being tall and good looking, and is he brings his troops down and he's got this massive army and they all get cocky and they decide to try and besiege Placentia after what Tasta says is some good food and some good drink. So basically they turn up plastered. And they turn up plastered, having forgotten to bring any siege equipment with them. And mm. so they just kind of, and they've gone a bit kind of native as well. I mean, Caecina's Roman, he's not been in Germany for long, but he started wearing plaid trousers. <gasps> Shock horror. And a cloak. And he's kind of, he's six foot of man hunk in these kind of trousers and a cloak. And he, he's recruit, his recruits, his army, start fighting bare chested. Oh, okay. And kind of singing German war songs. So for the guys in Placentia, 
these kind of Praetorians and raw recruits, it must have been pretty damn scary, but they just turned up without any siege equipment and just kind of had a go, you know, <laughs> had a go at kind of conquering it. <laughs> it does feel a bit Monty Python. It does, yeah. And they had to go off and they did have another go. They went off and they rebuilt, they went and built some siege equipment, presumably with horrible, horrible hangovers, and came back the next day. And they still couldn't, they still couldn't break Placentia. So, you know, they should have done, you know, as you say on paper, they're they're the trained army. They should have wiped, you know, wiped them out, but they don't because they get too cocky. And Kaisina's comes across as a bit of an idiot on certain occasions, such as this one. I wonder at what point anyone realised there was no siege equipment. I think they got overexcited. I think they I think they realised kind of en route and just went, oh, we can do it with the Rhine Legion. We can do it. You know, they're just kids. Because it's not like you forget your keys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you get there and eat your keys, you think, oh, I let, oh the table. Oh, yeah, they're by the remote control. Whereas siege equipment, quite substantial pieces of kit. How, how you would have got there and gone... Ah, uh, you know, that thing we were meant to bring, the one thing we were meant to bring. Ah, oh, I forgot it. Hey, let's just drink and shout at the walls. It shows the kind of inexperience of Kaisina, who's only in his 20s, and he's said to be a very good speaker, so he's very good at railing them up and giving great speeches that get them all excited and ready to fight. But the kind of practicalities um, are not within his reach on this occasion, unfortunately. So we have Vitellius. He's on the way down, and he's presumably, he gets word that Otho's uh, killed himself. He's got a clear line then. Yep, he's got a clear line. So they they mass, the forces mass, and they come down to Rome. And he's emperor, sitting in Rome quite happily. And then he hears in the summer, and I think what you've got to bear in mind with this, these all sound very linear, but lots of things happen at the same time. And communication takes time in the ancient world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It takes days or months. So, for example, Vespasian sends his son Titus to go meet Emperor Golba and Titus gets to Corinth before he finds out that Golba's actually dead mm. you know so these kind of things are happening at the same time and um, people aren't aware what each other are doing like Offo was not aware that Vitellius had been declared emperor so I think that's always worth bearing in mind when thinking about kind of events there's a delay people don't know what's happening in the other part of the empire until months after it's happened it's one of those things that we we're so normalized to instant communications See, now you've got the fourth and final emperor on the scene. No spoilers. And that, that brings us, I suppose, to Vespasian. And how does Vespasian, does, do you think he's always been biding his time or how's he been doing things? Well, I guess we've got to bear in mind that anything about Vespasian is kind of later propaganda, a lot of it, how he's kind of portrayed, because obviously he's the one who succeeds and so people are there writing his history. But when Titus got to Corinth and found Golba was dead, I mean, Vespasian was going to declare for Golba. When he found out Golba was dead, they went back to the east and they bided their time to see what would happen between Offo and Vitellius. So to wait, you know, who was the winner of that one whilst kind of building up what they were going to do in the east. So they kind of sit it out for a bit. But it doesn't go their way either because the idea that they'd got was that they were going to stop the grain ships going yeah. to Rome and starve the, starve Vitellius and he would surrender and that was what's going to happen and there wouldn't have to be a big battle and it would all be great. But there's a general called Primus who's not one of Vespasian's generals but he suddenly declares for him and he gets a bit overexcited and decides, oh, he's going to take on Vitellius and invades Italy and then it all kicks off. So the plan that they had didn't really come 
to happen. So there's this kind of rogue force in Primus who were fighting for Vespasian, but Vespasian's got no control over them. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. They've just got to see what happens. So it doesn't go all his way either. So he's pulled into the war, really. Yeah, so he sends on one of his generals, Musianus, ahead, who's trying to catch up with Primus to kind of, to, you know, to kind of slow him down a bit, I guess. But yeah, but then it's all happening in Rome and there's a battle for Rome. And obviously Vitellius is defeated at one point. But I mean, Vitellius tries to abdicate. He decides he, he gets talked round and he decides he's going to abdicate, but his troops won't let him. Where's, where was he planning on heading out to? I think they they kind of give him some kind of deal that he could go off to some nice villa by the seaside and there'd be money and it would be fine and you sit it out. It's um, Vespasian's brother, who's called Flavius Sabinus, who's in Rome at this time, and he does the kind of negotiations and says, look, you know, abdicate, you know, this, this army's coming, you know, abdicate. You don't really want this, do you? You've been talked into it by Valens and Caecina. You don't really want it. And he he tries to abdicate, but his troops, these Rhine legions, again, won't let him. Where is Vespasian at this time? He's out in the east, and I presume he was active in, I know he was active in Judea at one point. Yes. Is that where he is? Yes, that's where he is. He's been fighting the Jewish war. There's been a war that's been going on, a fairly brutal war that his son Titus is also involved in. So he's been doing that. So he's out in the east, and he's there for quite a long time. So he's not, actually, when I wrote my books, I don't actually have Vespasian in it at all because I'm only doing 68 and 69 so you hear lots of talk about him but you never actually meet him because he's the guy that's not there and we kind of assume he was there because he's the winner we assume he was there in 69 he wasn't he didn't pop into Rome till towards the end of 70 so he wasn't there at all he's a bit kind of he's absent and he brings back Josephus with him brings back Josephus indeed yeah we've now moved to the point where we've got Vespasian in play and the question i was going to ask you was we've spoken largely about romans fighting romans was there any danger that any other i call them tribes factions anything non-roman were looking on and going oh hang on a sec perhaps we could uh perhaps we could you know tidy things up a bit here and uh, you know sack a town or two or even launch some form of invasion um there's various kind of revolts that, that are going on at the at the time that Tacitus covers a bit, there's some going on in Germany, and I think there's some in Britain. Is it Civilis? There's a revolt there, so there's stuff going on that that have that has to be mopped up afterwards. So yes, there are external forces kind of looking in, and there's a lots of other stuff happening again at the same time. So whilst they're kind of trying to sort out who's emperor, there's also stuff going on in the provinces that needs sorting out as well. So yeah, it's it's one big mess, is what it is. Did you find it particularly enjoyable or was it one of those writing processes that you like much more after doing it all? I think writing any book is hard and it's just a hard slog. It's always a hard slog. Um, But yeah, I wanted to find out what happened because I didn't really know much about 69, like I said. So I wanted to kind of get to the end and work out, you know, how, who succeeded and why and which of my characters were going to survive and why. And it's such a rich year for just fiction because there's so many big battles and massacres and political infighting and backstabbing, literal backstabbing and possible poisonings. And, you know, it's it's just rich. And I really wanted to write write about it. I and mean, we've talked a bit about 69, quite a lot about 69. And I've left a lot out. I'm sure there's people screaming, going, but what about this battle? You haven't mentioned that. I know because there's too much stuff. <laughs> you have mentioned 
the drunken siege. The drunken siege, yeah. And and Narnia, we should mention as well. Yeah, Narnia. Because Narnia is referenced a few times. It's where the Emperor Nerva was from. We've come to obviously Vespasian. He lasts Vespasian lasts about ten years. Then Titus is on the throne, as it were, for a couple of years. He's not there very long. And this all segues into your your book, How to Survive in Ancient Rome, because this is set in AD 95. It would have been the time of Domitian, who was Vespasian's youngest son. Domitian is a divisive character. He's not much admired, but you're someone who thinks that he's had something of an unfair reputation or he's had a bit of a, a bad time of it. Make, make your case. What was What were the redeeming things about him that you found? I think he does everything that an emperor should. He builds a lot of stuff. So he there's a fire, another great fire under Titus in which a lot of buildings are destroyed and he rebuilds them, including the um, Temple of Jupiter. He widens the streets, which Marshall writes a very nice poem about. He's very pleased about. He builds roads. He builds a forum, which is now called the Forum of Nerva, but was his forum. So he builds. He's one of the biggest builders probably since Augustus. And he also does a lot of good legislation as well. He passes laws against child prostitution. He brings in anti-castration legislation and, and limits the price of eunuchs so the overseers can't cash in. He brings in morality laws, which, again, is a very Augustus thing. But, you know, Romans are big on kind of family and the proper way to live and this so-called golden age. So he's doing what Romans expect him to. And that way, he's very up on religion. He holds the secular games at the proper number of years interval because they're meant to be at a set number of years, but Claudius got overexcited and held them too early. But Domitian does it on the exact year that they should have been held. So he's very adhered to religion. He spends a lot of time in public religion. Um, He's very fond of the, the goddess Minerva of Jupiter. He builds, you know, great monuments too. He builds a temple to his family, the Temple of the Flavians. Um, He's very big on rooting out corruption. So he kind of does all the things that an emperor should do. I mean, even, yes, there is nasty, nasty incident in his reign where a Vestal Virgin is buried alive for breaking a vow of chastity. But again, if you look at that from sticking to the official gods and doing what is proper in religion, then he probably sees himself as doing the right thing. So he does all the sorts of things that emperors should do. Um, so that's what I would say is my kind of case for him. I'm just looking down my list. I wrote a big, long list of stuff that he'd done. And there's lots of kind of great, kind of very sucky up court poetry um, that gives you a whole list of the kind of things that he did. He rebuilt the palace, the palace on the Palatine. He completely redoes. He builds a stadium. He holds great games. Um you know, novel games for the people. He does, you know, he does everything that emperors are meant to do. So I would say that's my kind of defence. But yes, he gets paranoid. But then that's not really surprising when you're emperor because people are out to kill you. People are plotting against you. <laughs> I'd say it's healthy. You have to be. It's a healthy paranoia. It's a when I mean, there's a, made, a big deal made about, oh, he executes some senators. But if you look at all the emperors, they do this. You know, Claudius wiped out hundreds of equestrians. Why do you think then that he does have a bad rap? Um, because he gets assassinated, I think. Because your history is written up by your successor and he doesn't have a kind of straightforward successor, straightforward heir to big him up. 
Um, I mean, part of his kind of paranoia probably links back to his time in 69 AD because he was, whereas his brother and his father were in the East, Domitian was in Rome in 69 and he was only 18, 19. And he got kind of thrust into this as the kind of the son of somebody who's declared himself emperor. And again, as we said about communications, he probably didn't even know, there's a good chance he didn't know this was going to happen, that he didn't know that his father was going to declare himself emperor. So he finds himself under house arrest under Vitellius, and he finds himself in an awful predicament. He's in the middle of a battle that his um, uncle is fighting, and he has to flee from the Temple of Jupiter, which has been set on fire, and there's this big battle going around him, and he has to hide in the Temple of Isis and disguise himself as a priest to escape with his life. So that's pretty terrifying for, like, an 18-, 19-year-old, and he's then held up as the face of this new dynasty, and it's just him having to, you know be the face of the Flavians and he's been there and his uncle is killed in battle by Vitellius so he's been there and he's watched these senators swap sides and he's watched the politics go on and I think that's probably one of the reasons why he's quite so paranoid because he was there and he saw it firsthand um, but yeah I mean emperors are generally wipe out anyone they see as in their way including their relatives that's kind of fairly standard it's, it seems like he's had a lot of instances of isolation in his life. He's quite a solitary person. There's a the classic story about Domitian. Is he spent a lot of time on his own. He liked his own company. And so there's a story going around that when he was on his own, he was stabbing to death flies with his pen, you know, because they can't imagine why anybody would want to be alone. Who You know, Rome's a very public place, you know. They couldn't understand somebody who enjoyed solitude. I and mean, he'd had a good training as the kind of, He'd, under his father and his brother, he'd held, you know, various positions. He'd been a kind of prince as such. So he had kind of quite good training for it. But yes, I mean, he gets paranoid and he gets increasingly paranoid, which is not surprising when there's kind of plots against him. And you have the famous black banquet where he invites some guests around and everything is black, even the food and the plates. And I think, isn't it the background, something like gravestones or something like that? So, and the slaves are all dressed up as like in, in black and, you know, everybody's absolutely terrified for their lives. And that's whether it's his idea of a joke or just to keep them on edge. He kind of likes to keep people on edge. And I mean, if you read kind of like Pliny the Younger, he kind of served a mission. I mean, he comes across as very scary when he loses his temper. So, I, you know, you've got to have sympathy for these kind of senators as well, because it's a frightening thing this guy kind of yelling at you, insisting you do this and going red in the face when you don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, his paranoia works against him in the end because he's, he's not assassinated by senators. He's assassinated by his own staff within the palace. It's an internal palace plot. Um, and it's because they feared for their lives because he bumped off um, a guy called Epaphroditus, who's one of my characters in my books, who was um, with Nero at the end. He's one of the freedmen with Nero when Nero commits suicide. And this is like, what, 15 years beforehand and um, Domitian suddenly decides that Epaphroditus has to die because he was with an emperor and an emperor died and he didn't protect that emperor so he bumps him off and then that makes the whole imperial staff suddenly think oh we're next you know our lives on the line here and they conspire and it's them that kill him it's not the senators it's the staff so I didn't know that yes it's a, it's a plot by his um his Chamberlain, Parthenius, who Marshall writes several poems to, um, 
yeah, this is the Chamberlain. So he's very high up and they, they plot. They don't actually do the deed. They have somebody else do the deed and they actually don't get discovered for quite a long time, which it had to be quite scary. They, you know, Nerva is forced to hand them over when there's quite a gap between when Domitian is assassinated and when they get handed over. So, you know, the answer is that nobody knew they were behind it. And so they got, they had essentially got away with it. And then, you know, somebody obviously blabbed and they have horrible executions at the hand of the soldiers. Nerva has to, is forced to hand them over to the soldiers. But yeah, it was, it was an internal plot. Wow. I genuinely didn't know about that. I'm, I'm quite now fascinated by this sort of black dinner thing. Oh, look out the black banquet. Yes, look it up. It... And that <laughs> brings us, and that brings us, thank you very much, by the way, for, for all of that. That's, there's just, as you said, there's almost too much to really too understand. <laughs> I wonder as well, just one final question on how it went for them. And I'm, by that I'm talking about sort of Flavian, so Vespasian, Titus and Domitian. With the four emperors or the three emperors that went prior to Vespasian, do you think that stabilised the period after it? Because it's almost as if Rome had to periodically go through some form of bloodshed to vent anything that was going to happen, and then everyone just calms down. I think it doesn't calm down immediately. I mean, Vespasian, it takes a while for Vespasian's rule to settle. There are plots and things like that. It's not just like, bam, you know, Vitellius is dead, Vespasian's emperor, everything's fine now, it's 70, it's not 69 anymore. There's quite a lot of uncertainty uncertainty in that but I mean the main problem with kind of 69 the lesson was that the armies have the power the armies make the emperors yeah so you know it was the army who wouldn't let Vitellius abdicate it was you know it was the generals who encouraged him to go for it it was them who made Golba emperor it was, you know they're they're the ones with the power and so they do learn a lesson from this in that Domitian you know raises the pay of the army and he's very, very popular with the army after his death. They're probably one of the few groups of people who really mourn him. And similarly, Vespasian makes Titus Praetorian prefect to stop that kind of nymphidius Sabinus kind of, you know, them bumping off emperors and for pay, etc., and to make money. So they do kind of learn lessons from this. But whether it's a kind of Rome needs a purge, it's just there's a kind of there's a dangerous lesson that's learned that the army actually can be turned against Rome. You know, when yeah. the battles between Vitellius and Vespasian's armies in Rome, they're bloody battles in the streets, in the temples, in the porticos. So that's the what kind of comes out of 69 is this kind of, and it comes back to bite them in the kind of third century crisis, etc. This I, this power force that is the army. So thanks very much for that. Lots to say um, and then lots to go away and look up. And I'm thinking of, again, water organs and black banquets. Your book and your latest book, How to Survive in Ancient Rome, which again is out and is a perfect gift for Christmas. I've got mine ordered. Yay. <laughs> it gives you an option of seeing Rome from the view of the common person. Please describe, paint me a scene. Take you a scene. Um, it's very crowded. I mean, Rome, its height in the kind of first century had a million inhabitants, which is huge for an ancient city. I think London didn't get a million till about 1801. Um, and Rome's quite a compact city, so it's very, very crowded. There's lots and lots of people. Um, juvenile complains about walking down the street and people stepping on your sandal and, you know, people in litters being carried and getting in the way. It's a, it's an argy-bargy. And it's very noisy as well with that many people because people live in these insular, these apartment blocks, and they live very close together. 
and Marshall makes the gag about, you know, his neighbour across the street, they can shake hands outside their windows. They're that close together. So you're constantly surrounded by people, even if you're quite well off. Um, Seneca complains about living too close to a bathhouse and all the noise he can hear, the slapping of the masseur. I remember that, yeah. The screaming. And the the plucking. He doesn't like people screaming because he thinks that, yeah, people were plucked. If you haven't, if you don't know much about Roman baths, again, here's a chance for a a plug for a podcast and a pun for a plug for a podcast. I did a whole thing on Roman baths, and it it is very interesting. The stuff that goes on in baths is not quite what you might imagine, and I'm looking at you, Marshall because he has lots to say about what goes on in baths, which I won't repeat here. But yeah, they were noisy places. Would it have been noisy at night? It was worse, because they'd got this rule to stop it being so crowded, um, that wagons delivering goods couldn't go through the daytime, couldn't go through the city during the day. Um, So they went all through the night. So people kind of delivering food, etc., happened all night long. So I think Juvenile, again, has a line about insomnia kills many of us. So it was really noisy. And a lot of business in Rome is done outside. Schools are done outside. So you can hear, you know, the teachers making them repeat whatever they're learning outside. So everything's on the street. So it's a very noisy, noisy place. It's also probably the smells as well from that many people that close together. The perfume, the overbearing perfume, you know, you get complaints about kind of the smell of cinnamon from people's perfumes offending people and all the food stalls outside as well, the smell of that. So it's kind of noisy, crowded, loud and smelly, I would imagine. That would probably be what kind of shocked us first of all, I would think. I read a paper by, or an article rather, by Alex Scobie, and it was all about the slums and sanitation in in Rome, and it just wasn't pleasant. He wrote that there was lots of dog excrement, there was lots of human excrement, there was just lots of every type of excrement. One of the reasons that I did the the podcast on the Roman baths was because I was interested to think how did the Romans perceive the baths, and I can imagine that if you were someone living in one of those insulae, you lived in a, a very small building, you were surrounded by cramped conditions, you could go somewhere where they had running water, you could go and exercise in the baths, you could do all sorts. Perhaps the only type of open space in your area that you might have access to. And it would have been a real boon to anyone who was living in those kind of conditions. You can see why they were so popular. And people used to go to the baths, not just to bathe, just to go to the baths. I suppose it's a bit like the the local park in a built-up area. It becomes a place where people can get away from what must have been a really quite corrosive environment at times. I should add, by the way, I'm talking about the public baths. There were obviously smaller baths as well, private-owned baths. And they are sometimes luxurious, a bit like pubs or bars. Some of them are sort of dive bars and others are really expensive. You get a little napkin under your drink type bars as well. So the baths were a, were a bit like that. But I'm talking about the obviously the public baths. So we've thought then that it would have been very noisy and very smelly. Whereas what would, what would you be doing of a day in ancient Rome? Uh, probably some shopping, that sort of thing. You might go do some entertainment. Maybe you go off to the games and sit, you know, take a nice cushion, um, sit in the right seat because it's all heavily demarcated according to class. So, you know, you need to know where your seats are. The posh seats are at the front for the senatorial class and the slaves and the women are at the back. 
Um, so you might you might do that. Like you say, you might go to the baths. Um, you might have a job even that you do. It's just it's just like now, really, in a way, you feel you entertainment, work, leisure. Go to the temple. Might be a good festival on. You can take part in with a banquet afterwards. You know, Pliny the younger wrote lots of letters around this time, and he's often talking about the amount of poetry recitals that go on and people oh god yeah <laughs> that he puts on yeah. yeah not that i'd ever want to go to them no no but he's he's saying oh it's rome's such a flourishing place for the arts you've got philosophers to come and and talk and you know the sorts of yeah. things that you think you should do yeah but you never do the car i suppose the ancient Rome version of the gym you know yeah i'll go, I'll go. but you never do and you might go and hear a a particular speech or an oration from a Greek philosopher, but really you, you want to go to the games or you might want to go and see a bawdy play or something. Yeah, dinner parties are very the thing. I mean, Marshall writes endless, endless poems about dinner parties and trying to get an invite to the top dinner party and why isn't he get invited and, you know, is it <laughs> all manner of reasons why he doesn't get invited. When he does get invited, then he invariably complains about the food, the wine, the host... And you kind of think, yeah, that's why you don't get invited, because <laughs> you, know, you just complain about it. Yeah, he complains about people hanging around the baths just to get invites to dinner, but is doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. I... It's the same thing himself. It's, okay. He also wrote about how people would go to the baths just to work up a thirst. <laughs> there was obviously not nightlife as we understand it. There was just lots of noise. When were people stopping doing things? When did people say, okay, too late for us, we'll, we'll go to bed now? I guess the lighting situation plays a part in this Um, because obviously there's no electricity. So when it's dark, it's very dark. And so, I mean, there were cook shops that people went to kind of after dark and things like that. And there were bars. But I get it's difficult, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, dinner parties, you've got oil lamps, et cetera, et cetera. So they could go into the night. But you don't really want to be wandering around on the streets of Rome after dark. You know, Juvenal's no. quite clear on that. He's like, before you go out after dark, write your will. You know, it's a dangerous city. Blimey. You don't, you know, <laughs> not like a, a mob with you and some sturdy slaves. You don't want to be wandering around after dark. I mean, the Roman day starts at kind of sunrise and finishes at sunset, and um, whatever time of year it is. Um, so obviously the days are shorter in winter. So they change the length of the hour so they can fit in 12 hours. <laughs> so an hour in summer is longer than an hour in winter. <laughs> Is there anything else in terms of the areas you're, but I'm thinking about the amount of things you cover in your book. What are the sorts of topics that you go into? Oh, we look, I look at pretty much everything. It's a good general introduction to ancient Rome. Um, so it's packed full of facts. Um, so I cover things like housing, so the accommodation, whether you be rich or poor, the food, whether you be rich or poor, what you might be eating, uh, religion, the types of gods, where what you do to, um, venerate them, sacrifices, uh, festivals, what kind of festivals you might attend. Uh, medicine, we look at medicine and health. That's one chapter as well. I'm going to have to flick through now, I'm forgetting. There's about 14 different topics in it, so it's quite well covered. So you cover a lot of different areas, and how did you meet that opportunity? I was approached um, by Pen and Sword, who the publisher. I was approached by a Twitter, actually. Um, by one of their commissioning editors who said they had a project you know would I be interested in it so I went yeah all right um so they yeah so this is a series there's various how to survives in various different periods in history there's one how to survive in ancient Greece and one how to survive in ancient Egypt 
and I helped do the Rome ones. They gave me a list of topics and kind of questions they wanted me to answer and said, you've got 50,000 words, go. Um, so it covers, yeah, all kinds of things like the social social class and the family and pets and just every single aspect, politics, you know, every single aspect, law and order as well, every single aspect of kind of ancient Rome. So it's kind of dense, dense with facts. Um, it's obviously very different to writing fiction um, in that everything has to be checked and everything has to be correct. And you, um, But it's, it's good in a way because you get to show off your research um, because you get to do end notes and you can go, yes, I did read and a bibliography. So you can go, yes, I did read all these books. Yes, yes, this is true. Yes, I did. Do, you know, I did check this. Yes, I did research that, which is good because in fiction, people quite often think you make stuff up that's absolutely true. And unless you put it in the author's note, they'll never know how much research you had to do. So it's, it's, it's a different discipline. Um, it's equally as hard, but, but for different reasons and writing fiction, I think. Are there any particular facts that obviously, again, I don't want to give away too much. Are there any sort of standout things that you found and you just went, huh, OK, much like I reacted to Nero's water organ? Yeah, I, I do love the um, pet eels pet eels people were very into having pet eels and crassus took it one step further and he would dress his pet eels as lovely maidens in necklaces and jewels which just wow. made the question someone put on twitter the other day how do you put a necklace on a creature yeah. that doesn't have a neck and there is no answer to this which makes it even more intriguing but he was devoted this year he trained it to come up and feed from his hand and like we say decorated it with jewels but that's something that i remember from uh Petronius Satyricon, the Feast of Trimalchio, or Trimalchio, which is a lampoon of someone who has got no real taste, and he brings out this massive eel, and it's just got loads of baubles and jewels attached to it. I think it's Suetonius. He's talking about how Augustus visited someone, and I'm getting the name Pollio in my head. Yes. And a slave drops a cup, and he petitions, because the punishment for the slave was going to be fed to the eels. Yeah. Are you doing what would the eels eat him? I don't know how I think, yeah. I thought that's the most sort of James Bond villain way of, of being killed in antiquity, pretty much. If there's anyone out there who's listening to this, this is a very niche crossover, but it's possible. And you are an eel trainer, <laughs> or you are in some way capable of understanding the behaviour of eels, please tweet me and, and explain whether or not A, you could dress an eel, B, if you can train an eel. Is there another thing or, or do you want to keep these these cards to your chest? Um, I always, I, I do love Pliny the Elder, his natural histories, which is just a treasure trove of all manner of wonderful facts. And he has a whole section on people changing sex, which has the opening line that women have changed into men is not a myth. And then he gives a whole load of examples and he ends it with the line, I myself saw someone who became a man on his wedding day, which you think is going to be the start of a wonderful anecdote. Um, but that's it. That's it. That's he, no further explanation is offered. He does about, I think it's 13 chapters on bees, but he can't do this anecdote justice. You know who's worse? Who's worse? Who's worse than that? Livy. Livy is the worst. And Livy is the worst because he has an entire chapter on a law. And then at the end, he'll say, in this year, a child was born with the head of an ox <laughs> and lights were seen in the sky outside of a particular town. A statue bled 
and a woman was born with the head of uh, a table and it said moo it just bizarre stuff and that's it just kills it one one line and you're thinking on the balance of things livy i would rather hear about the child with the with the head of a of a cow than another sort of 15 lines on someone's speech about a law i, I just want to know more and he puts these right at the end and it's it's around the period of time where hannibal's uh, active in in italy and the idea is that there's a sort of natural disturbance but he describes things like he says there's a flying altar with people so people and some people have said is this a ufo is this you know an early description of ufo we don't know but there's all sorts of things that are going on he just throws throws a bunch of things at the wall it's, it's wolf stealing things statues bleeding uh all sorts and it just gives you good omens yeah good omens. just come on a bit more please yeah <laughs> No, I like it just because there is no anecdote, there is no story. It's just I saw I saw someone change sex at their wedding. You know, I mean, nothing about the argy bargy that followed at the reception. Nothing, you know. That's it. That's it. That's the story. It must have been really frustrating to know him, because he would come out with it and be, uh, yeah, and he'd be just walked off. That's it. No, that's it. Yeah. No, that's no more. Story, yeah. oh, oh, thanks. No Cheers, more. Just that. Thanks. <laughs> well, we've come to the point now where earlier this week or the last couple of weeks. I put out and yourself put out some tweets, messages on social media. And we asked the question, what do you want to know about ancient Rome? And the first question, older Romans in the 80s to 90s AD may remember Caligula, Nero, the year of four emperors and now Domitian. Was there a popular sentiment in this period that the emperor as an office, not an individual, was a bad idea? It's a very good question. It's, um, it would be, it's kind of difficult to say that it would be a popular sentiment because it's not the kind of thing you'd be able to say publicly because there's treason laws and people get people get on put on trial, particularly under Tiberius, for the most ridiculous things. Um, they don't always get killed. Oh, yeah, the, the Maestas trials. Yeah, so you get people who are put on trial for having a coin of Augustus in their pocket when they went to the public loose to have, to have a wee, and that's considered treason. Um, so... If there was a popular sentiment, nobody's likely to express it. But if you read Tacitus's Annals, you get a feeling the kind of dripping contempt he has for the likes of Augustus is kind of evident. Um, so he's maybe not saying it, but maybe there's a bit of Republican zeal there. And you get this constant harping back to this golden age that all Romans go on about, and they go on about it whatever period they live in. And it's some period in the early Republic before everybody got too wealthy, um, and that's their kind of golden age. So you could, is that harking back to a Republican era without an emperor? Maybe, but popular sentiment, nobody's likely to say it publicly. I mean, after there was a bit when Caligula was assassinated with the senators, Suddenly, Randy said, "Oh, we'll, we'll restore the republic." But then Claudius had been bound behind a curtain, so that was the end of that idea. So, well, that was that was again that was the Praetorians. Yeah, so that was the playing their hand. Perhaps you're right in that people were looking back to a time that they could never attain to. Uh, the next question is: A citizen buys a slave. What documents does he get? Where is the sale registered? He gets a contract. Um, there's lots of kind of legal cases and, and laws that talk about proving your ownership of a slave. So the, whoever you buy the slave from, whether it be a slave seller, you'll get a contract and the seller will have to say, will fess up to any defects, any physical defects, um, any tendency to run away, things like that. And the contract will state like the name of the slave, their price, who's selling them. And 
I kind of guarantee a lot of them have kind of guarantees should you be dissatisfied with your purchase and you get a contract yeah with a kind of written guarantee and then if that slave runs away or something happens to them you can then prove they're yours and get them back again so that that's essential it was a very formalized process then it, it, and I suppose because you were buying buying the slave from a, a, a dealer as it were mm. who was based in Rome they wouldn't want their reputations to suffer no, I mean, there's lots of dodgy sales that go on. Was it Mark Antony paid a fortune for a set of twins who weren't actually twins, just people who looked kind of alike. How did you find that out? How did, how did you find that one out? Who, who knows? You know, maybe he brought them when he was drunk, you know, and they went, oh, <laughs> woke up the next morning. Oh, you, you're not twins. You know? The next one is uh, a very very good one because it's one of those questions that that does get asked what entity was charged with what we would describe as maintaining law and order in the city of rome and to whom did this entity answer so i suppose a kind of what is what was the police force as it were there is no police force as we would understand it there is no kind of detecting of crime if you know somebody's breaking into your house there is nobody who you can call um, which is quite scary when you think about it. So there isn't this kind of police force. What there is is order. You have the urban cohorts who are based in Rome and their job is to maintain public order. So they sort out riots and maybe a bit of crowd control at the amphitheatre and the circus. And similar for the Praetorians, they sometimes get on detachment to, you know, a bit of riot maintenance or whatever. But there's there's no police force as such. Um, there's just maintaining the order. There's a law, obviously. Um, but there is no crime unless you go and report it and make a case, and it gets really complicated. So how most of it is sorted out, if somebody, like, steals your your cloak or something, you've maybe put an advertisement up asking for its return, or you might lean on your kind of client-patron network to get it back again, or you might write out a curse tablet and curse them, more like and that's probably the easiest route you probably wouldn't go to any authorities things are kind of sorted out within communities so there is there is no police force as such the closest thing i could find or i was sort of aware of them anyway with the was the the vigiles uh, who were more of a sort of fire department than anything else but yeah. they were they offered something that wasn't quite a police force but I, I, I perhaps came came the closest to it in the absence of one i suppose well, they, they, they might be present if you were being mugged or something. They might bash your mugger on the head with a bucket, you know, when they're fire buckets <laughs> or whatever. But, they, they, you know, that's that's not their job. So they might quite happily leave you to it, you know, especially if it's a fire they've got to go do. But They might be the ones robbing you. They might be the ones robbing you indeed, yeah. There is a lot of focus on rulers in history, but what is a day in the life of a perfectly average Roman citizen? What is the most common job and the most common food? Well, I think we've covered the first part and the options food's a very good question and as as is what sort of jobs would you be doing um so food for the poor they get a grain doll so bread is a key contingent of that they would take that down to their local bakers who will make the bread for them because where they're living in their apartment they're unlikely to have any cooking facilities um but you get yeah kind of cheese vegetables sausage those sorts of foods are available to the poor um so, so a kind of mixture of that sort of thing 
Um, a lot of stuff is out of reach. Fish gets ridiculously expensive at one point. They have to pass kind of sumptuary laws on it when people are paying kind of 10,000 sesterces for kind of three mullet fish. Um, so that's kind of out of reach of the poor. Um, jobs, kind of the things you'd expect now. So, you, you know, your baker, your sausage maker, your barman, a perfume seller, somebody who makes clothes, work in a laundrette, you sell fish. Maybe you're an astrologer, a bit more niche or a sorceress, maybe, or, you know, a doctor, or a midwife, or, you know, the kind of jobs that, mostly the kind of jobs that we all need now, firefighters, like we just discussed, yeah. We're ignoring the fact that there was obviously a large sort of body of slaves to do work. Mm. However, there were also opportunities for people to do manual work who weren't slaves. And I, I often thought, well, you spoke about Domitian, you said he did, uh, did lots of building. If you're working in any form of construction... Mm from a labourer to someone who was an engineer or someone who you know, was even more technical than that, you'd be employed a lot. Mm. There's a lot of it is slave workforce. Like famously, Colosseum was built by the slaves from the Jewish war. But yeah, um, and there's obviously labourers as well. It's yeah, and The slave situation is a kind of big problem for employment. A lot of emperors say, oh, I won't employ slaves, I'll employ you know citizens and that makes them very popular so yeah there is that kind of contingent but as we said there there is the kind of normal jobs you expect and they're not necessarily slaves who are doing them so there there is work but yeah the kind of slave situation makes it a bit more difficult and the final question what was it like for women in rome i imagine it was pretty grim for enslaved women but what about those who were free born um, it's marginally better than it is for women elsewhere in history. So Roman women can inherit, they can own property. Um, we know from inscriptions that they own businesses like kind of brickworks and winemakers. Um, we know from poetry, from the likes of Ovid and, and Juvenal and Marshall, that they went out. They went out to the theatre, to the games, to the circus, to dinner parties, Um Juvenal spends a lot of time in his sixth satire complaining about women. Um, yes, you know, it's satire, so it's overblown. But for it to work as satire, there has to be some kind of truth there somewhere. And he complains a lot about kind of knowledgeable women quoting poets he's never heard of, you know, women being up to date with current affairs, these uppity women who are advising their lawyers and having copious affairs all over the place. Um, so they have a fair amount of freedom. But on the other hand, they can't vote. They can't hold public office. If they're divorced, the children will naturally go to the father and they are appointed a male guardian who oversees all their financial affairs. Um, so there are ways out of that. If you have three children, you can lose your male guardian. But um, women are also kind of subject to harsher penalties under certain laws, particularly the adultery laws are very unfair on women. So they're still very much subjugated. They considered lesser. They don't have a public role in public life, but it's marginally better than elsewhere in history is what, what you could say about it. <laughs> so it's not great, but it's not quite as grim as it is elsewhere. I came across a book a number of years ago, which uh, I picked up from a charity shop, and I thought this one day is going to answer a question. And it was Women's Life in Greece and Rome. It's a source book by Mary Lefkovich and Maureen Fan. It's really interesting. It has a lot of detail in there. And they've got a list of jobs that women had done, which was noticed uh, or noted rather on uh, funerary urns and inscriptions. Mm, yeah. And it's difficult because some of them, they can't always tell whether these were free women or these were slaves. You see, sometimes you can kind of work it out. Mm. 
But these included jobs, as you've said, a teacher, fishmonger, grocer, hairdressers, musicians, secretaries, seamstresses. Uh, hairdressers, as I've just mentioned, was, were really quite popular. And one that I think was largely slave, judging before I could work out, was wool weighers. Mm. So they had a lot of options, I suppose, in, in some sense, perhaps more than we might have thought they did. More than you think, but yeah, they're not. Like you said, you've got a male guardian who's overseeing yeah. everything you do. And depending on who that guardian is, that can be quite restrictive yeah. or not at all. We don't know. We do, you know, we don't know. These laws are there, but you don't know how much they were enforced. I mean, technically, women caught in adultery were all banished to an island. But then you think, well, where are all, where are all these islands? You know, they, that they were getting banished to, you know, it doesn't kind of make sense. So you, you're never quite sure how rigidly these things were enforced. But they had, certainly had a lot of freedom to go out the house. They weren't constrained to the house. But, yeah, there's a societal expectation on them that they are chased and they get married and they have children. And that's what they do. So that that is kind of standard. We're coming right to the end now. And I want to say thank you very much for coming on. Really, really been interesting talking with you. Realise we've covered a lot of stuff. Is there anything that you want to say now, or is there anything that you want to anything you haven't mentioned, or any grand announcements you have? Um, I'd like to apologise for missing loads out of sixty nine AD. Um, just because <laughs> so much happens and you can't do it all. I say uh, I could mention my next book, which I've just finished writing, which is another non fiction, which is called Sex and Sexuality in Ancient Rome, which um, I'm definitely banning my mum from reading at least two chapters in, but that should be out in um, 2021. How did you end up on that particular subject or subject material? Again, after I'd written for Pen and Sword, they said, did I want to write another one and gave me some titles? And I chose this one thinking, oh, that would be interesting. And it is an absolutely fascinating subject. And it's nice to write a good length book on just one subject. Yeah. After writing 50,000 words on like 14 different topics which by necessity is quite general and not as in-depth as you'd like to go, to just have like 80,000 words on one topic was quite quite a treat, quite a treat. You could have just retitled it hashtag Phallus Thursday. Phalluses do get mentioned. They do get mentioned. <laughs> I just want to, again, say thank you very much for being on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge and insight with us. Until next time, take care. I'm not sure when the next podcast is be. I'm probably going to take a month off and be back in 2021. Uh, charged and raring to go so thanks again to lj trafford i was gonna say thank you for inviting me on <laughs> and until next time keep safe and stay well <laughs>